Before we begin today's program, I wanted to share two pieces of Tin House-related news. Tin House is now accepting applications for its 2021 online winter workshop, which will take place across the MLK holiday weekend this January, and which will feature short fiction, novel, poetry, and nonfiction classes. In addition to general scholarships, Tin House will offer awards for those without an MFA, for writers over 40, for black women, and those from the LGBTQIA and indigenous communities. The application deadline is November 15th, and payment plans are available for both the application fee and tuition. Tin House is also now accepting applications for its 2021 online YA workshop, which will take place across President's Day weekend this February, and which will feature manuscript evaluations, craft lectures, industry panels, and agent meetings. In addition to its general scholarships, Tin House will offer awards for writers of color, parents, and those who identify as LGBTQIA. The application deadline is November 22nd, and payment plans are available for both the application fee and tuition. So again, the deadline for the online winter workshop is November 15th, and for the online YA workshop is November 22nd, and more information can be found out about both at tinhouse.com. You may know today's guest, Elisa Gabbard, as the poetry columnist at the New York Times, or you may know her from her books of poetry, prose, and hybrid works, or you may know her as a significant figure on Twitter as one of the masters of the 140-character form. She isn't classifiable, and neither is her latest work, a book of essays that aren't personal essays, but essays that she is in and through which we get to know her nonetheless. A book of image text, a book that is about the distant past and about the not-so-distant future, a book built with low sources and high sources from YouTube and Twitter to Henry Bergson and Susan Sontag, a book about our brains, and a book about everything outside of our heads, which really might also just be about our brains. Back in 2018, two years ago now, Elisa tweeted, Man, that between the covers guy really reads the shit out of books. I, I later joked about that tweet as the best future blurb for the show, and here we are. Lisa Gabbert is adding to the bonus audio archive a reading of some newer poems, including some 15-line poems, a form she discusses in our main conversation. Instead of giving you 15 lines on all the reasons to become a listener supporter of Between the Covers today, beyond access to the bonus audio, from Elisa Gabbert to Ted Chang to Richard Powers to Jenny Offal and all the Tin House merchandise, I'm going to focus today on new things that have been added. So while $1 an episode is the entry level, $1 an episode, which is $24 a year, to join the Between the Covers community, where with each episode, you'll get an accompanying email from me talking about the most interesting things I discovered in preparing for the interview, 
pointing you toward further places to explore after you're done listening, giving you the best audio and video, written and spoken materials to check out if you're hungry for more after a given episode, and also enabling you to join our collective brainstorm of who would be your dream guests for the show, a brainstorm that is already shaping things for 2022. For instance, just yesterday I reached out to an author in Argentina that would never have happened without the input of listeners. All of that and the satisfaction that you are playing a real and substantive part in ensuring the health and viability of the show going forward are available at the $1 an episode level. But as you'll see if you go to Patreon and look around on the Between the Covers site, there are a lot of other possibilities at different levels of support. And the one that has been added since the last episode is from past and future guest Ricky Ducournay. And it continues that Jorge Luis Borges theme from a couple episodes ago when Natalie Diaz read from Borges' book of imaginary beings for the bonus archive. In 1983, Ricky did the illustrations for the English translation of Borges' book, Plan Akbar Orbis Tertius, a book that Karl Ova Knausgaard calls the greatest story ever written, a book that has influenced writers as different as W.G. Zebald and Ted Chang, a book that was directly gifted to Borges by Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau when Borges visited Canada. That book is now unavailable and out of print, but Ricky made 10 unique gicle prints from 10 of the illustrations for the book and signed them as offerings for future supporters. So if any of this piques your interest, Elise's poetry readings, becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before the general public, or getting a Borges-influenced print from Ricky Ducournay. There is all of this and much more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Elisa Gabbard. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. Stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is essayist, poet, critic, and New York Times poetry columnist, Elisa Gabbard. Gabbard holds degrees in linguistics and cognitive science from Rice University 
and an MFA in creative writing from Emerson College. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's, The New York Review of Books, The Guardian, and The Paris Review, among many other places. She's the author of the poetry collections The French Exit and Le Bleu, or The Judy Poems, of the hybrid collection The Self-Unstable, which The New Yorker and the Poetry Foundation listed as one of the best books of 2013, and of which Teju Cole said, It was the most intelligent and most intriguing thing that I've read in a while, moving between lyric poetry, aphorism, and memoir, and with thoughts worth stealing on just about every page. She's also the author of the essay collection, The Word Pretty, a New York Times editor's pick, of which the Chicago Review of Books said, The word pretty is so smart, it hurts. Elisa Gabbard is here today to talk about her latest essay collection, just out from FSG, The Unreality of Memory. It, too, is a New York Times editor's choice and has garnered a starred review at Kirkus. Andrew Sean Greer says of The Unreality of Memory, Terror, disaster, memory, selfhood, happiness. Leave it to a poet to tackle the unthinkable so wisely and so wittily a work of sheer brilliance, beauty, and bravery. Alexandra Kleeman for the New York Times says, Gabbert draws masterly portraits of the precise, uncanny effects that govern our psychological relationship to calamity. Even more impressive is her skill at bending crisp, clear language into shapes that illustrate the shifting logic of the disastrous, keeping the reader oriented amid continual upheaval. The essays often seem uncannily to anticipate circumstances that the author simply couldn't have known about. They have a clarity and prescience that imply a sort of distant, retrospective view like postcards sent from the near future. Finally, Sarah Manguso says, Amid impending disasters too vast even to be perceived, what can we do, cognitively, morally, and practically? Gabbert, a tenacious researcher and a ruthless self-examiner, probes this ultimate abstraction in her essays, goes past wordless dread, and comes up with enough reasoned consideration to lead us through. Do you feel, and how can you not, as if your emotional endurance is exhausted by horrors already well underway? Then you should read this book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Elisa Gabbard. Thank you for having me, David. So just to orient our listeners to when we're talking, we're talking on Thursday morning of election week. We still don't have a president-elect, though I'm cautiously optimistic. The blue wave did not happen with the House of Representatives and the Senate. But I'm wondering how you're holding up this, this particular week of weeks since we are talking about disasters and apocalypse? Yeah, it's changing from hour to hour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've gone from just right on the edge feeling like I can't stand this (laughs) one more minute um, to sort of, it's fine. It's going to be fine. (laughs) Trust the process. Um, Right right now, I think I'm in a pocket of it's going to be fine. Um, but yeah, last night, 
I mean, I, I slept very badly the night before last night. And then last night, around like 8.30, um, 8.30 mountain time, my husband and I were kind of following what's been going on in Arizona. And, you know, somebody was talking about this tranche of votes and, you know, depending on if it was under 60% um, for Trump, he probably couldn't make up the difference. But if it was over 60 and they said a portion of the tranche was at 59 and we were both just like, oh, my God, just turn it off, make it stop. I can't I can't handle this much information like. I felt like I was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I went into like a panic sleep. I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't not watch the news, but I also can't like read or do something calm and mindful. And I just took Benadryl and went to sleep for like 10 hours. Well, I, I have to say that your tweets on Tuesday night about not doing well, <laughs> which also included your panic nap, where you also said, I'm not despairing, I'm puking. And you're... you're <laughs> TV Smith reference, to be clear. <laughs> and you're you're um, you were cheering for the wolf reintroduction bill in Colorado, and tweeted, "Come on, wolves! I need you to eat me." Uh, I found these <laughs> these tweets very comforting and calming, particularly so. And uh, you know, that's also something that I felt about your book, a book that is about Chernobyl, 9/11, Ebola, Trump, super volcanoes, climate apocalypse, and a book that never tries to comfort the reader about any of these things. And you said that other people have had similar responses. And I searched on Twitter, and it's true. A, a professor of psychology tweeted, I started reading The Unreality of Memory, and it is mesmerizing and dark and peculiarly comforting. And a writer says, A book about disaster in a time of constant disaster. Disaster is everywhere and always imminent. And oddly, reading this book feels comforting. And when I tweeted about this, I don't know, maybe a month ago about being comforted, tons of people were agreeing from Michelle Philgate to Yashwina Cantor here at Tin House. And I wondered if this was surprising to you or if it was by design. And if it's the former, I, I wondered if you had any theories about it. Yeah, it's a little surprising. Um, I mean, I guess the thing is it stopped being surprising because I've heard it so often. And, you know, to some extent, it shouldn't be surprising because I found the process of writing the book very comforting. Um, doing the research, immersing myself in disasters that are no longer happening <laughs> and that can't possibly directly affect me <laughs> because they're in the past. Right. Um, that was comforting to me. It, it just gave me this, this sense of perspective and you know, made me feel like my minuscule little life matters less. Um, you know, it it makes me able to project into a future where, you know, my 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 personal pain and suffering no longer exist. And somehow that that was comforting to me. But um for whatever reason, I didn't necessarily expect that the product of all that research would be comforting for other people. But I've loved learning that. Yeah. Like <laughs> feeling like um, I can somehow, you know, repre represent that effect on me on the page so that other people can take part in it. But there is a little, you know, nagging worry that um, like, is that what I'm supposed to be doing? Should I be comforting people? 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think you could make the argument that, um, you know, especially if you take activism seriously as a writer, you know, I would like to think that there's some element of activism in my work that, you know, what I'm doing is infuriating people <laughs> or um, making them want to get up and act versus feel comforted. But I, I don't know. When I say that, I, I really mean I don't know. I don't know what the right what the right, um, I guess what the right path forward is or what what is the true effect that I want to have on people. I mean, maybe comfort is activism. Well, I found two compelling theories on Twitter about it that neither one of them suggests, and I don't think you do this either. I don't think you're actively, if it actively feels like the writer is trying to comfort us. But one of the theories was Alyssa Harad's, and she said, my theory is containment. It's a deeply ethical book in that way. It's not there to reenact the drama of what's described. And a second one is by a poet who said, I'm taking regular breaks from doom scrolling to read essays about apocalypses in the unreality of memory instead. I think it's helping. Something about brilliant analysis coupled with elegant prose really takes the edge off. But either way, somehow you've, you've written a book that is of the moment and one that therapeutically is buffering us from the moment. It's like this double effect that I do kind of want to explore further. But before we do, I wanted to talk about a certain irony about the book. And that is that I've seen a lot of people misremember the title. <laughs> and they, they I'm glad you noticed this. They misremember the title as the unreliability of memory, which is so great because it's such a meta mistake. Um, but I've also seen people presume that unreality means non-existent. And so I was hoping you could talk to us about unreality for you and how, if at all, it relates to unreliability and the unreal. Yeah, I've, I've also noticed that. Um, it's, it seems to me like a bug, not a feature, even though, of course, it's ironic. Um, it, it never occurred to me that people would misread it as the unreliability of memory, which seems like a terrible title to me. Um, <laughs> and, but I also don't know if they are misreading it and then like reproducing the error when they type it, or if it's just a typo and they know it's unreality, but their fingers type unreliability, or, you know, maybe their word processor, word processor doesn't recognize that unreality is a word. I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, I do think, you know, of course, part of the quote unquote unreality of memory is that memory is unreliable, but that seems to me like a kind of, you know, one small part of <laughs> the much larger and I think much more profound statement, um, the unreality of memory. And what I like about the word unreality is it always feels like you could split it two ways. Um, it could mean like un dash reality, <laughs> uh, like the opposite of reality, or it could mean unreal dash itty, um, the quality of, of unrealness, which I do see like a very slight difference between those two mm. um, connotations because unreal doesn't really mean non-existent. It just means like hard to believe. Um, and I, I kind of talk about this in, in the epilogue, because when I found that essay, The Unreality of Time, 
that really is meant to be a proof of the non-existence of time. Like the philosopher who wrote that, John McTaggart, really believed that time didn't exist. And you know, I don't think real. Uh, I don't think memory. <laughs> I almost said I don't think reality doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Arguable. Um, I don't think memory doesn't exist, but I just think it's profoundly unreal. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, in a way you could, you could push that belief so far into the point where it's, I'm saying like, it's like, it doesn't exist, but it's not like the process of memory doesn't exist, right? Like, of course the process of memory exists, but your memories themselves are just so like a shimmery mirage that, you know, we don't have the direct access to that we'd like to think we do. You know, it's, I think memories are very much like dreams, like they just fade quickly and lose detail. Um, yeah, I mean, the memory is our only access to the past, really, um, you know, aside from documentation, but documentation is kind of built on memory or all the kinds of forms of documentation that we have, whether they're film or whatever, they tend to reproduce the same kind of faults and failures that our our minds, our memories have. And so there's just no way for us to record history without introducing the kind of errors of memory. And so that is what I find um, so fascinating, I guess. Speaking of unreality, there, in, in, in some regards, you've, you've confronted a phenomenon that's more common for science fiction writers, and that's that people are characterizing you as having predicted the future. And uh, so like the Washington Post's review was titled meditating on disasters she predicted a pandemic and lots of interviews are asking you how you did this i didn't get the sense myself that you would you were trying to or had predicted the future but it at the same time it was uncanny maybe unreal to see <laughs> dr fauci and pandemics as topics in your book so i, I guess i want to to hear about this description of sort of Nostradamus-like qualities to you in relationship to the unreality of memory. I find the idea that I personally predicted a pandemic, like, very silly <laughs> in a way. <laughs> I mean, I I didn't predict anything. I just read some books and, like, tons of scientists and epidemiologists have been predicting a pandemic for years and years and years and years. And so... Um, like, yeah, eventually they were going to be right, you know, and probably sooner rather than later. Um, so, yeah, you know, the fact that my book happened to come out during one um, is it's a weird coincidence. It's a weird coincidence. But I it's not like I wrote this book thinking I believe there's going to be a pandemic in 2020. Um, that was really just a very unlucky coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think, you know, just in terms of, oh, it feels like I'm predicting things I couldn't have possibly known. I think that effect is just because all disasters have these certain features in common. Like there's a certain way that humans are going to react in terms of the way they think and the way they feel and what behaviors they start engaging in. Um, Anytime they're going through a gigantic disaster or a crisis. So when you read about you know, the way people felt during the Black Death or the way people felt during Chernobyl or, um, you know, after a tsunami hit in Indonesia, like there's going to be 
things that feel like so familiar and uncanny, like that's exactly how I felt last week, or that's exactly how I felt when we first went into lockdown. Because once you give everybody the same input, like <laughs> the output is going to kind of, it's not going to be exactly the same, but there's going to be a lot of overlap. So I think that that sense of uncanniness or prescience, um, I think it's sort of an illusion. Like you could get that from reading any history that deals with, with crises and catastrophe. And this, and this pandemic, it sort of flirted with the unreality of memory when it was still being finished. You had an option to potentially nod to it in the book explicitly if you wanted to. Talk about that deliberation if, if that was a deliberation. And and the, and your decision not to actually um, fold it explicitly into the book. Yeah. So my my final final like second pass edits were due in late April of this year. So there were a few just kind of queries from editors like, do you want to mention the current pandemic in this essay at all? I, that essay I originally wrote in 2018. And it just felt, you know, kind of like just like a laughable, impossible question. Like, what could I possibly, <laughs> what could I possibly say at this point? You know, yeah. we like we were clearly just so early. <laughs> it was all just kind of beginning to unfold. And it just seemed like it would be such a pointless footnote <laughs> to try to, just to try to even mention it. Like, I knew that when people were reading it, they were going to have COVID-19 very much in mind, very much in mind, even if things had gotten a lot better by the time the book came out in August, which of course it didn't really. Um, I just knew that, you know, everybody would be thinking of COVID like it would already be there, like a shadow to the text. And it seemed almost undermining to, to make that more explicit. Yeah. I'm confident that you made the right decision myself as a reader. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I did decide, though, based on that question to put like the year of composition at the end of each essay, because I figured in a few years, you know, people may it may not be as clear um, that that essay would have had to have been written before the pandemic started. And so I, w- I wanted it to be kind of clear for for posterity. You know, if there's still people reading this book in five years, maybe there won't be. Um but I just decided like, okay, well, all of these essays were written at a moment in time where like, they're not, they're not going to stay up to date. It's not like, you know, the climate science could stay up to date or, you know, one of these other disasters that I talk about, like um, a nuclear disaster, for example, there could be a big nuclear disaster next year. And, you know, I wanted it to be clear that I wrote the nuclear essay before that. So I decided to add the little, um, you know, date of composition, but in a way it did kind of feel like, oh, is this like a weird flex? Like I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to make it seem like I do have these Nostradamus powers. Yeah. I mean, the dates were super powerful for me, but for an entirely different reason, they did so much with, with such a small gesture in a way. So in your, in your bomb interview with Lincoln, you said something that I really liked that you felt that not that you knew what was going to happen, but that you felt pre-abandoned, that it was obvious with the Trump administration that we would see all the current disasters get worse, 
but also that there would likely be one or more unforeseen disasters and that the incompetence and cruelty you anticipated with Trump and how he would handle it made you feel pre-abandoned by the administration. And I have to say that the dates had this outsized effect in that regard for me because Trump isn't a big part of the book, but he sort of felt huge because of the dates. So the inclusion of the year at the end of these essays, whether you're talking about something from 100 or 500 years ago or something that might happen in the future, it just kept reminding me that we were writing or you were writing from within a disaster. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely started writing this book, like thinking of it as a book, I should say, um, right after the election in 2016. So you know, coming out before this election, to me, it feels very contained. Like this is, this is my, my book of the Trump years, um, which I, you know, I'm not religious, but (laughs) I've done like some kind of superstitious praying (laughs) over the past (laughs) few days. Yeah, I'm praying this is, you know, the beginning of the end of the Trump years, at least. We're counting Um, on you. (laughs) Sorry, what? We're counting on you. Yeah, your <laughs> I know it's it's all up to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did. You know, I I did feel this kind of like gathering of focus um, right after the 2016 election that made me just more urgent, I guess, and kind of the projects I wanted to work on. And um, yeah, I feel I feel a little like alienated from that state of mind now because I've completely reverted to just wanting to, you know, write about poetry and novels. And mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it was, it was just a lot to be thinking so much about climate change and politics and um, problems that are like, you know, potentially too big to solve period, but certainly too big for me to solve. And I've gotten a lot of questions this year that I just don't know how to answer. (laughs) But I think um, that that also might be part of what people find comforting about the essays is that I don't kind of reach for like the sophistry of simple explanations Mm. because I don't have any. Well, if I were to, if I were to characterize the three sections of the book, I would say that part one, which focuses on disasters from Chernobyl to 9-11, Ebola, supervolcanoes, isn't really about disasters, but about the spectacle or lack of spectacle of certain disasters and how that affects human behavior and, and human meaning making. And that part two takes that into the brain and also into the realm of philosophy, stepping back from disasters to look at the nature of self, of perception and of self-perception, and that part three then, armed with that knowledge, brings us back out into the world to look at morality and empathy and responsibility, at compassion and compassion fatigue in face of all that is going wrong around us. But instead of starting with disasters like you do, I wanted to start with part two, because part two feels like it most connects to your work before the unreality of memory, the questioning you do of what a self is and how real the self we think we are really is seems to be one through one through line through a lot of your work. Um, so the book Self Unstable, 
is the most obvious example, not just the title, which opens with the line, what is the self? And in interviews for it, you've said, certainly I think it's almost impossible, if not completely impossible, to have a coherent experience of the self, considering that you have to use your selfhood to form that concept. It's like trying to look at your own eye or taste your own tongue. But you also see this in the Judy poems, where you write poems through the persona of the fictional character Judy from one of Wallace Shawn's plays. But not only are you writing as someone else, that someone else is a self-unstable, because as you learn at the end of the play, she's actually dead. And we've been listening to a ghost who herself is questioning the nature of theater while acting within one. So uh, quite, a le- quite a lot of <laughs> levels of, of, of meta-narration there. But, but even in the word pretty, your last essay collection, we learn that when you read old journal entries, it is easy to imagine they were written by someone else. And also that you fantasize in the third person where you are both in the scene and watching yourself in the scene and then wondering which one is you. So while your answer to this question will likely be unreliable and unreal, do you, ha- do you have a self-narrative for why you have this interest or obsession with the self and the ways it is less stable than the way we act it is? No, I don't. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know. I will say that part two, um, that's my favorite section in the book. Um, I think you're absolutely right that it's like the most kind of deeply connected to my other work. Um, <laughs> so you don't even have a theory of um, that you tell yourself, even if you're skeptical of it about why you return to this because it feels like a, there's a something that just continues unendingly regardless of the form you're writing in that returns you to this question for you to trouble it over and over again. Uh, you know, it makes me think of, um, I really remember this one day when I was a little kid and when I was in, I think it was second grade I went to an elementary school that was right down the street from my house and my mom would walk me to school. And I remember one day just being really worried and upset and she was trying to get me to explain what the problem was and I was sort of afraid to say it. And I finally said like, I just constantly hear a voice in my head and maybe somehow I'd heard something on TV or in a movie that said, if you hear voices, it means you're crazy. Mm. And so I was afraid that, that the fact that I heard this voice. It was just my inner voice, (laughs) but I thought it meant I was crazy. Um, And my mom was like, no, 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 sweetheart. Like you're just thinking like, (laughs) that's just you. That's just you narrating your own thinking. And I I seem to remember that she told me it means you're going to be a writer. (laughs) That could be a complete like, you know, invention. Maybe I'm projecting back, but I really seem to remember that. And whenever, whenever, um, I would talk to a teacher or something when I was a kid about like what I should be when I I grew up. They would always say, oh, of course you should be a writer. You're going to be a writer. 
Um, and for whatever reason, I didn't really take that seriously when I was a little kid. It didn't, it didn't sound like a career to me, I guess. But, um, but just <laughs> that sort of internal kind of, I guess you could call it an internal monologue, but to me, it's like, I don't think all my thinking happens in, in language, but I, like, I feel most myself when I am thinking in language and I feel like my absolute best self and my most intelligent self when I'm writing because, um, because I get to like actually see it and perfect it and, you know, really perfect the language and make it better than whatever the kind of muddled cognition that's just happening in my mind is or would have been. Um, and so like in a way that feels like myself, my, my true self, that thinking linguistic self. Um, and I guess, but there's always this feeling like there's that, that there's a doubling that occurs. Yeah. Like I don't feel completely unified with that either. It's like, there's two levels, you know, it's like the whole idea of the homunculus, like <laughs> where, where is your free will coming from? I guess I could just never get away from this feeling that like I'm somehow split or doubled, that there's multiple levels that cannot possibly be reconciled. And because that's my whole experience of everything in the world, whenever I'm awake, whenever I'm conscious, whenever I'm thinking, whenever I'm doing anything, when I'm looking at a piece of art, listening to music, eating, um, that there's like two very similar, but not quite the same selves. This is, this is exactly where I wanted to go. When I wanted to take this from metaphysics to cognition, um, looking at your brain <laughs> and then asking you a question about how much of us looking at your brain tells us about brains more generally or not. Because um, one of the reasons why I brought up this mistake around the way people misremember the title as unreliability of memory <laughs> is because I feel like you're attracted to these moments, these uncanny moments, these meta moments, and obviously meta moments having these sort of double vision and even self-reflexiveness to them. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borrow a technique that you often use in your own writing of mixing high and low sources and include some things you've written, some things you've said in interviews, some tweets of yours, and some lines of poetry as a sort of Elisa Gabbert brain medley prelude <laughs> to my next question. All right. So <laughs> number one, when I'm working on an essay, I experience a heightened consciousness. I notice what I'm noticing. I think about how I'm thinking. My approach as a writer has always been to make this stuff explicit, like the essayist me is there in the essay almost as a character. Number two, I always listen to my own interviews. It helps me calibrate exactly how much I should hate myself. Number three, <laughs> um, number three, I can't decide if my symptoms, I can't decide if my symptoms are confusing or if confusion is the symptom. Number four, part of suffering is the useless urge to announce that you're suffering. There's no other way to say it. I'm suffering. Just to say, quote unquote, I suffer helps. Number five, animals can think about thinking, a grand failure of evolution. The best experiences involve no thinking at all, much less self-reference, much less an endless strange loop. Whatever you do 
don't start thinking about thinking, which I, that's just amazing that, that, um, <laughs> yeah, that last one. So my question <laughs> about this meta aspect to the way your brain works, this heightened consciousness or awareness of yourself, watching yourself or thinking about yourself, do you think this is something unusual about you or do you think you yourself are a heightened example of something that happens for all of us and that it actually tells us something more generally about how animals think something about how our brains function that is usually invisible or made invisible. What is happening behind that curtain? You know, I, I, I'm very skeptical of any theory that tries to kind of separate humans and animals, but people have said before, like, Oh, the difference between like higher intelligence and just like, I don't know, regular animal intelligence, um, which, you know, I don't, I don't know how you would prove this is that, you know, humans can do metacognition. They can think about thinking and like, I don't know, crows can't, but again, I don't know how you could prove that a crow doesn't ever think about thinking. Um, but I think, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I studied, linguistics and cognitive science and in college I mean that's where it really solidified those like my two favorite things are language and thinking um I thought a lot about metacognition (laughs) uh during that time you know reading about how the brain works and you know I read Gertel Escher Bach I don't remember that much of it but that book is very much obsessed with um meta stuff self-reference and you know, maybe just ever since then, I've always just been sort of hyper aware of it and, you know, maybe just doing it more and more. I think it's, if you're a obsessive, anxious type, which I am more and more as I get older, <laughs> I think, again, that's only heightened um, because, you know, you also have meta feelings in addition to meta thoughts, like feeling bad about your feelings. Do I have the wrong feelings? Um Yeah, all of that, I just, I do it and I, I will say I don't feel bad about it. Like I don't, I I don't trust, even though I wrote in that poem, um, don't start thinking about thinking. (laughs) I don't really kind of trust like mindfulness advice about like being fully present in the moment. I mean, I see the argument for it. And I think, you know, there are moments of like pure joy where you feel fully contained in the present. But most of the time, I just don't live that way. Like, I think a lot more about the past and the future than the present. But one of the uh, things you might have in common with mindfulness practice isn't live in the moment, but this impulse to try to get around the cascading uh, stream of thoughts to, to what is there underneath it or beyond it or around it that um, at the edges of the way our brain functions, it feels like that's an impulse of, of a mindfulness practice that um, maybe to a different end than what your end is. But, um, but that there's something on the other side of that um, waterfall of thinking part of it is also that I'm really good at sort of recognizing my own patterns of thinking and feeling to the point that um, I've always resisted like doing therapy because I feel like a a lot of the point of it is to have somebody kind of point out when you have like a bad habitual pattern of thinking that holds you back. 
And I always feel like I'm not, like, I already know all those. <laughs> like, I'm good. And if I'm still doing it, it's because I think I need it in some way. Yeah. <laughs> like I've decided that um, the pros outweigh the cons. <laughs> well, this is sort of where your collection and reality itself gets really fascinating and very weird when you go into the nature of, of perception itself. Um, an investigation that suggests that it isn't just an unreality of memory, but an unreality of reality. And one of the things that you raise in the book is the, a theory of Bergson's that says memory and perception arise and exist at the same time, if I'm understanding your, your summary of it, that we don't experience reality, quote-unquote, as it is, and then recall it later in a distorted way, but that even the first time we live through it, we are already experiencing a warped version of it. Um, I don't know if I've said that well, but talk to us about why you wanted to engage with Bergson here and maybe also orient us to whether his theories are even accepted by others at this point. But mm -hmm. um, it feels like it was a really fruitful engagement that you had with this theory mm -hmm. around um, that it's not, I mean, talking about making memory weird, but you're not making memory weird on its own. You're making it back to the present moment, be in the present moment that the present moment itself is, is constructed and manufactured. Yeah. Um, well, I should say that I'm not, um, I'm not like an expert on, on Bergson though. I would like to be, he's, he's really fascinating, but, but what I did get really interested in at the time that I was writing the epilogue specifically was this debate between Bergson and Einstein, which I write about a little, um, and, Essentially, like Bergson was hugely famous in his time. He was friends with Proust. I think he married Proust's cousin or something like that. And um, he was like a celebrity. Like people would, you know, show up, just like storm the lecture hall when he was giving a lecture. And then um, his contemporary, but, you know, he was like, I would say, you know, Einstein came up a little bit after Bergson. Um, Einstein basically thought that the entire way that people had been talking and thinking about time was just poppycock like just this is nonsense <laughs> um like this is all just you know armchair theorizing this is actually what time is like it's like perfectly testable and provable <laughs> um it's not this floofy thing that you can just make up theories about um and then Einstein became this huge celebrity and they had a big debate about it. And, you know, basically Bergson got like laughed out of the room because people thought he didn't understand Einstein's theories, which may be true, you know, they're kind of difficult to understand and they were very new at the time. But I mean, I think he was just talking about something else entirely. Like he was just talking about the way, you know, you and me and anyone experiences time, which is still like a great mystery. Um, and like, you know, regardless of the fact that we accept like, oh, yeah, OK, you know, um, time is very well understood <laughs> from a physics perspective, like the philosophy, just in terms of like, how do we experience live time is different. And like, there's still interesting things to say about that and like unanswered questions. Um, there's a really great book called, I think it's called Why Time Flies, Not How Time Flies by Alan Burdick that 
I cite in the book as well, and I really recommend. It's fantastic. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's kind of like a contemporary look at like that 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 question, like how do we experience time? Why is it so weird? Why does it still feel like we can't understand it? Um, so yeah, I I was I was kind of thinking about that sort of dichotomy, which which Einstein thought like, oh, I fixed it. No one's ever going to have any questions about time again, which, you know, of course, isn't the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, another, you know, framework that I found really helpful for thinking about time and memory and the present versus the past. I just going to look up the words really quick so I don't get them wrong. Um, oh, oh the, the Umwelt and the Umjibong. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. I don't speak German, um, but that, that's just that, this idea that, you know, we can only experience what we have, like the equipment to experience and process. So the simplest example is like dogs have a much stronger sense of smell than us. So they're like experiencing smells basically off the spectrum. <laughs> um, and, you know, owls can see colors, or eagles can see colors that we can't see, stuff like that. So and the the umjibong, I believe, is that which you cannot possibly perceive or know because, you know, it's just not perceivable by your equipment. Um, and we tend to think of like whatever we perceive as reality. But of course, like we don't we don't even know what we're what we're missing. We don't know what we don't know, as Donald Rumsfeld would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I the part that I really focused on with the with the Bergson for me was the possibility that instead of memories eroding the accuracy of, of the past present moment, the present moment itself is warped, uh, which uh -huh. I think would then argue possibly that um, this doubling that you experience is actually a doubling that's sort of hardwired into something about us or about um you know, biological organisms perhaps, but the, the places I went aren't all in the book, but I was just thinking about how, for instance, um, if we're thinking about the present moment that we experience as if it was, as it is quote unquote, as it is, uh, like, so when sound and sound and, um, and, uh, light will uh, arrive at our brains or at our heads at different speeds so if an event produces both simultaneously they don't arrive to us simultaneously so our brain actually holds one of them and doesn't let us perceive it or experience it until the other one is arrived and it can uh, make them simultaneous and construct the experience not as it is yeah. but in a weird way as it was at this other point in space yeah, your brain does a lot of um, correcting that way to like to make things seem more coherent. And just there's a lot of stuff also just to save processing power. Like you're not constantly if you're like we're both sitting in rooms. My brain isn't constantly actually perceiving the room that I'm in because it knows it's static for the most part. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the room is, you know, like cached in like a website. It's just like <laughs> yeah. the images are saved locally. <laughs> well, I'm not constantly seeing it all anew just in case something changes. And like my brain is set up such that like, you know, if there's a flicker of movement or something somewhere on the screen, like a, like a radar screen, then it's going to reload maybe, but it might not even re reload everything. It might just reload that part of the, like the screen, quote unquote. But not even caching only. There are things that, 
the brain either adds that aren't there or things that it edits. Like for instance, I'm thinking of like the blind spot that we have where we have no rods or cones in our eyes and our brain fills in that with extrapolated material so that we don't walk around seeing a black spot in our vision and we edit out our own nose in our vision. So there's this way in which as this feels like a doubling, like because the brain is creating an experience that is a sense of seamlessness, that we're experiencing something coherent. And yet, when you're talking about the umwelt or the umwelt, um, it feels like you have this impulse to, to try to get to the margins of it and to see what's happening behind the curtain again. So there's like these two selves, right? You're comfortable, as you said, when you were comfortable about language as as close to who you were but but also sort of uneasy that you sense that there's this other thing underneath it and it (sighs) seems like that's actually literally true i don't know i don't know where i'm i don't know where (laughs) i'm going but another example of that in the book is um the part in the the essay about mirrors where and you know I, i i heard about some um mental condition. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but basically if you somehow have, you know, either a tumor or some kind of damage to this part of your brain where you kind of store (laughs) your constructed self, you won't be able to see yourself in the mirror. Mm. Like, even though like your eyes are fine and you can see everything else, you can see the mirror, you just don't see your reflection. Mm. So, I mean, that really strongly suggests that what you're seeing when you look in the mirror is not your reflection, but like just this construction of what you expect to see because yourself is a construction. Like that blows my mind. Yeah. No, I love that. Also, it also made me, I don't know if I can explain why, but it also attracted me to something you said in the Paris Review about Proust. You said, I pulled Swan's way off the shelf, read the first paragraph, and was astonished. Its obsessive attention to memory, time, and the minutia of experience as it occurs through thinking, it was not just good, it was, as they say, extremely my shit. Um, but I was thinking even, I was thinking sort of about the syntax of Proust with all of the nested clauses and the ways you, you you can be unmoored within a sentence and find your footing within a sentence before it ends, dwell with inside of one. I wondered if it was somehow mimicking something about our brains um, in relationship to this weirdness. Well, you know, it makes me think of just how frequently I interrupt myself, like really both in talking and in writing, because I'll start to say something and then constantly like, just rethink it, double think it, <laughs> unthink it. Um, and, you know, that's what like clauses and, you know, M dashes are really good for. And, and as you read before, I do listen to my own interviews. I can like hear myself doing it when I'm talking too. Um, it's less well organized, <laughs> but there's the sense where like, I'll say something and then I'll go off on a tangent and then I'll come back. So it's like, I'm doing these kind of long mental parentheticals. Um, have I, I don't think I have, I haven't told you this M dash thing. Have I, I don't think so. <laughs> where, uh, when I was going through like final edits of 
the unreality of memory and just kind of trying to make sure I wasn't overusing certain words or phrases and stuff like that. At some point I decided to do like a, you know, a search to see how many M dashes I had used in a particular essay and it was 40. And then I was editing the next essay and I did it again. And again, it was 40 M dashes. No way. 40 <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, Oh my gosh, like, an essay is a piece of writing with 40 M dashes. Like yeah. that's what it is. <laughs> and then uh, a month or so ago, I was writing like a shorter, um, what was it that I was writing? It was like a, I guess it was a book review. It was kind of like a essayistic book review, a little bit longer than like a column, like a thousand words, but not like a full length, um, you know, like four or 5,000 word essay. I want to say it was about like 2000 words. And I was chatting with a friend about it. And I was like, um, yeah, this is like, this is just kind of a shorter essay or it's probably going to have 20 M dashes. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, I did, I checked at the end and I had exactly 20 M dashes. Oh, I can't wait for this class. I'm going to sign up for this M dash class. <laughs> so it's like, there's just this very predictable rate of times that I'm going to feel like I need to use an M dash to enact a sense of like interruption yeah. or changing my mind. And like, if I don't do that this enough times, it's not going to feel like a complete piece to me. And 40 is the, uh, is the number of weeks in a pregnancy. So it's the gestation of your essay. <laughs> you need to do 40 M dashes before you, before it's done. Well, that can't be coincidence. <laughs> nope. Um, well, I want to, I want to take this weird brain science and philosophy of self into the realm of disasters and the way we engage with disasters. But before I do, I was hoping you'd read an excerpt from part one. There is survivor's guilt, but there is also survivor's elation, survivor's thrill, a thrill felt only by those a little farther from disaster. The September 24th, 2001 issue of The New Yorker included a symposium of responses to the attacks. A few were able to acknowledge the element of thrill and observation. Jonathan Franzen wrote, unless you were a very good person indeed, you were probably like me experiencing the collision of several incompatible worlds inside your head. Besides the horror and sadness of what you were watching, you might have also felt a childish disappointment over the disruption of your day, or a selfish worry about the impact on your finances, or admiration for an attack so brilliantly conceived and so flawlessly executed, or, worst of all, an odd appreciation of the visual spectacle it produced. I find Franzen's moral hierarchy here questionable, that worst of all most puzzling. Because to me, more than worry or admiration, the most natural and undeniable of reactions would seem to be awe. It's the spectacle, I think, that makes a disaster a disaster. A disaster is not defined simply by damage or death count. Deaths by smoking or car wrecks are not a disaster because they are meted out, predictable. A disaster must not only blindside us, but be witnessed and re-witnessed in public. The Challenger explosion killed only seven people, but like the Titanic, which killed more than 1,500, and like 9-11, which killed almost 3,000, the deaths were both highly publicized and completely unexpected. Disasters are news because they are news. 
All three of these incidents force people to watch huge man-made objects, monuments of engineering fail catastrophically, being torn apart or exploding in the sky. These are events we rarely see except in movies. The destruction of the Challenger and the World Trade Center are now movies themselves, clips we can watch again and again. The proliferation of cameras, which we now carry all the time in our pockets, makes disaster easier to witness and to reproduce. It may even create a kind of cultural demand for disasters. We also get to watch the reaction shots, both the special effects and the human drama. Roger Angel's version of Survivor's Thrill in the same New Yorker issue is less chastising. When the second tower came down, you cried out once again, seeing it on the tube at home and hurried out into the street to watch the writhing fresh cloud lift above the buildings to the south, down at the bottom of this amazing and untouchable city. But you were not surprised, even amid such shock, by what you found in yourself next and saw in the faces around you, a bump of excitement, a secret momentary glow, something is happening and I'm still here. Angel is saying this is not an aberration, it is the norm. It is one of the terrible parts of disaster, our complicity, the way we glamorize it and make it consumable, the way the news turns disasters into ready-made cinema, the way war movies, which mean to critique war, can really only glorify war. We don't talk about it now, but I always found the Twin Towers hideously ugly, in a way not explainable by their shape alone. They were long rectangular prisms, nothing more. Their basic boxiness was somehow an affront. I find the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building beautiful. I find the Eiffel Tower beautiful. It must be their tapering sweep, the way they diminish as they ascend, their detail suggesting fragility. How could anyone have ever found the Twin Towers beautiful? They seem designed only to represent sturdiness, like campus buildings and the brutalist tradition that were said to be riot-proof. A friend, a New Yorker, disagrees. She tells me the buildings did amazing things with the light. Another, also from New York, says they were sexy at night. But all skyscrapers are sexy at night, from below, if not from afar by virtue of their sheer dizzying size, their sheer sheerness. They stand like massive shears stabbed into the sky. Despite their imposing, even ominous height, the towers fell in less than two hours. The Titanic took only a little longer to sink, but that happened gradually. When you watch a building collapse, it seems like it suddenly decides to collapse. It's a building and then it's not a building just a crumbling mass of debris. There is no transition between cohesion and debris. It is terrifying how quickly an ordered structure dissolves. Where does it all go? Buildings, like anything, are mostly empty space. We're talking today to Elisa Gabbert about her latest book from FSG, The Unreality of Memory and Other Essays. So this section is the most electrifying of the three, I think. Partially because you explore feelings that are probably really common, but are also taboo to speak out loud. But also about how some of these weird, unspoken feelings when taken from the level of the individual to the level of the state can become full-on grotesque or evil. Um, one thing this chapter reveals is that 
our response to disaster isn't related to the size of the disaster in magnitude or scope, which you nod to in the part that you read. Chernobyl is only the 14th worst nuclear accident in history, but not worldwide history. It's the 14th worst in Soviet history. The continual firebombing in Japan was more deadly than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There are orders of ne- of magnitude more deaths from the fossil fuel industry than the nuclear industry, and so on. Um, the focus that we give to a given disaster, the ways in which a disaster lives on in history, doesn't correlate to how bad it was if we're measuring it objectively through, through death. Um, and one of the ways this is true, which is one of the, I think one of the most gratifying and unsettling parts of this section is, is with regards to the aesthetic aspects of the spectacle or disaster. Um, so I, I recently attended a talk with Claudia Rankin. She was talking a, about a book she was reading called What Images Want. And that book makes the claim that even when we are concentrating on the spectacle of death, that the dead bodies are actually collateral damage. So for instance, what the 9-11 terrorists wanted was the image that the deaths came with but were not the point of the attack. The point of the attack was to get the image of bringing down the towers. So that just hints, that's you don't talk about that specifically, but you talk about a lot of similarly uh, charged taboo topics. Um, but I was hoping you could talk about ways you're engaging with the staging of the spectacle of death with regards to disaster as an image. Yeah. I, I love that idea that you just shared. Um, that makes complete sense to me. And I think that's why, um, I think that's exactly why the challenger is so indelible in our memory and nobody talks about the Columbia disaster anymore at all. I, I talked to a writer, a month or so ago who he read the book and he told me um, that he had just, yeah, he'd completely forgotten that happened that he either, he said that he thought he either just conflated it with challenger because like, we don't have room in our minds for kind of two space shuttle explosions. Um, or he's like, well, maybe it was just, you know, too close to nine 11, but I, I really think it is that there's no image associated with it mm. because it wasn't filmed. You know, the challenger explosion happened on film. A bunch of people were watching it live. It was the, um, it was a takeoff explosion, but the Columbia burned up on reentry, and they didn't—they didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody was filming that. I don't even know if you can film a shuttle reentry. I don't That's know. It's an interesting question. Um, but regardless, it wasn't. Or, you know, I mean, you know, maybe if it had happened now, like somehow that would have been <laughs> captured on photo somehow on film somehow but it wasn't and so like you kind of when you read about it you kind of try to picture it or you might have some associated images like debris that fell on the ground but there's not this like one defining image slash gift slash short film that shows you what it looked like and I think that makes it so much less memorable yes but also like less disturbing less real like 
it just doesn't shock us as a culture in the same way. And so we forget about it. And I think that's one of the truly terrifying things about the pandemic is that it's not very visual. And so it feels less real. I mean, one of the, I guess one of the parts about the image, uh, the staging of an image because of its ability to produce awe, as you say in the part you read, and the staging of a spectacle in order to get an image. Um, it was really haunting to read, particularly around the atomic bomb in Japan for me, um, where you said that the U.S. was worried that if they firebombed Japan too much before they exploded the bomb, the A-bomb, that the contrast between pre-Japan, pre-atomic explosion Japan and post-atomic explosion Japan wouldn't be uh, as powerful. It would be too small. So they were worried. Yeah. They were worried about it in, in an aesthetic sense, essentially, Mm -hmm. that they were producing a dramatic event to get an image, much like the 9-11 terrorists also were going for an image and maybe for, I think in both cases, we could say for awe. Yeah, I think they wanted a symbol um, and like a symbol of American power. And as you say, the firebombing was more damaging overall. They destroyed a lot more cities and killed more people. But um, yeah, the symbol was very, very important to them. And like, that was that was part of their big argument for using it, that it was gonna have like a different order of impact than just more firebombing. Um, and I think, you know, this is something that I still wrestle with about the book in terms of like decisions I made, I feel like, you know, there are certain decisions, there's so many decisions when you make a book and some of them, I feel like I could 100% defend the death. And, you know, people might've tried to change that thing or challenge that thing 10 times. And every single time it's had step, 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 because I was so sure I wanted it exactly that way. And there's other things that I was never sure about and they never really came up. Um, nobody called attention to them or thought there was anything weird about them. They were just sort of taken for granted. Yeah, let's leave it that way. But in my mind, I was always kind of uncertain about them. And one of them was like including the images and, um, and you know, secondly, including the ones that I did and not you know more or fewer. And that's one of those decisions that to me felt like just kind of contingent and it ended up just settling one way, but it didn't have to be that way. I think you know the book could have had no images or it could have had more. Um, you know, part of it was that I kind of wanted to actively participate in that thing that I'm questioning and maybe condemning, which is like propagating these images that are, you know, on the one hand haunting, on the other hand, um, yeah, disturbing, unsettling and in a gross way. Like, is this I don't know if it's good for those images to be in the book or not, basically. And so like, sometimes I think it's good because it's not good. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there, um, a lot of them, there's something like offensive about them. But then there's, there's this weird offensiveness also in some of the concepts you raise around the striving for beauty around the bomb. For instance, the, the suppression of non mushroom cloud, 
bomb explosions because they didn't, they wouldn't have created the same effect to show the images that were um, more disturbing looking. I think there was images of bombs exploding, atomic bombs exploding. They looked more like domes rather than mushroom clouds and something non-organic and made it maybe seem like the bomb was more, I'm guessing more evil and that something about the mushroom cloud made it seem more um, powerful, powerful and awe-inspiring in some way that we relate to as humans. I think so. Yeah. I think the mushroom cloud just looks like a really, really big ass explosion. (laughs) So it's just this like proof of like, we're going to hammer you with this like 100 X times the, the power of, of, you know, what you, what you think is possible in a bomb. Um, But yeah, those, those images of the bomb before it goes into kind of mushroom cloud territory, it's just, it's this like jellyfish membrane and it's so uncanny and creepy and yeah, it, it makes you feel, it makes you think of an alien invasion or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it like suddenly feels like this is beyond us. This is not something we have control over. It's no longer our power. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's why that they purposely banned those images. They mm-hmm. wanted to control the symbol of power. Well, I want to, I want to go to, as you, you touched on briefly, the types of apocalypse that aren't spectacles and the way that maybe makes us go, our brains go haywire around rational (laughs) behavior. You, you, one of Uh the epigraphs at the beginning of the book is by Susan Sontag, which goes, with the inflation of apocalyptic rhetoric has come the increasing unreality of the apocalypse, a permanent modern scenario. Apocalypse looms and it doesn't occur, and it still looms, which sort of feels in line with a different kind of apocalypse, which is the type with no spectacle, like climate change, like COVID, um, like various versions of slow violence that you engage with in the book. So I was hoping we could spend a little time with you talking about our brains in relationship to this sort of disaster. So I think it's quite similar to the situation I was mentioning earlier, where you kind of stop seeing the room unless something moves. Um, our brains are kind of hardwired to respond to a sudden change, a sudden threat. And climate change is not like that. <laughs> so yeah, the two concepts that I found so helpful for me in understanding um, the way we think about climate change are the hyperobject and slow violence. So the hyperobject is the idea of something that's just so spread out in terms of a scope, and that can be either in space or time, likely both, um, that it just becomes unprocessable. And so this is a concept I got from Timothy Morton. um, And he says, something that I think is true, which is that basically the very, 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 very large is harder to conceive of than the infinite. And so like that's climate change It's happening everywhere. It's happening all the time. Um, but it's not like a meteorite, um, or even a forest fire, like the concept itself of what's going on is bigger than any one of the symptoms. And so we do tend to respond to the symptoms, which are often contained and urgent, 
but then there's a feeling that like once you get past that the contained disaster whether it's the forest fires or a tsunami um that somehow you can kind of rest and breathe a little bit because <laughs> the contained event is over um but of course that's only just like you know one tiny little tentacle on <laughs> the gigantic uh, millipede or whatever that is that is climate change and we basically can't grasp all of it at once um, so and then so so violence which is related is just this idea that like you know certain kinds of damage that we're doing to the environment to cultures to other countries um, that happen like slowly over time out of sight are much easier for us to ignore. And um, we just feel less bad about it. Like, you know, here from the comfort of our homes in the US, um, like uh, it's it's harder to ignore things that are closer and more sudden, you know, like Puerto Rico losing all their power. Um, but it's very easy for us to ignore famine in Africa. I feel like there used to be a lot of attention on that when I was a kid and like nobody talks about it anymore. So things like that, that just like, it's almost like you just get sick of it <laughs> and there's too much competing urgent disaster to kind of keep track of the really slow things that just keep happening in the background. Well, this also brings up something that you raise in many different contexts, which is this way that our brain is able to make something that in the short term is seems freakily abnormal relatively quickly make it the new normal. Um, mm -hmm. And I wondered if the way our brains can make the new normal happen so quickly. You know, I, I, on the one hand, I wonder if it's related to the way we fill in blind spots or edit out our nose that the brain is making a coherent and cohesive, seamless experience mm -hmm. But you, you bring up like uh, Svetlana Alexievich's work in Chernobyl and she talks talking to this old man who's living in a dead village where no one would live anymore. And she asks him, aren't you afraid? And he answers, of what? You can't be afraid the whole time. A person can't do that. Some time goes by and ordinary life starts up again. And... I suspect that has a uh, there's some sort of positive survival aspect to being able to do that but obviously it seems to me like in his in his case he should be getting the hell out of there uh, it's, it's the invisible radiation regardless of the way he's made it into the new normal similar to the way we're making all sorts of invisible things normal or for what you say getting sick of being reminded of of traumas elsewhere that we can't seem to meaningfully engage with and make a difference around. It does feel like the new normal maybe also be a maladaption now. Like something about it now is maladaptive to our survival. I would attribute that to scale. I would say that it's actually completely adaptive on the individual level. And like, I'm grateful for the fact that I'm able to to normalize horror because otherwise how could you, you know, get through the day? Um, that reminds me of uh, Natalie Diaz, who's very skeptical of um, the notion of empathy. And she said, 
if I actually could feel empathetic of if that really is something that I could feel, I would not be able to function. You know, like given all the things that are really truly going on, not far from her door and far from her door in a given day, if I could actually embody these experiences as I live my life and drink my coffee and write whatever I'm writing, I wouldn't be able to function. I don't know if that's related. I mean, I, I think, I think normalization is definitely like this kind of illusion, but, but you can maintain it a lot of the time. And so it's kind of like, you know, the cartoon running off the cliff, like he can stay running as long as he doesn't look down. And the problem is that, you know, every now and then it's not a problem. I think it's good in a way. I think that it's good that the illusion bursts that you, that you look down, someone pulls the magic carpet out from under you. And all of a second you, all of a sudden you feel all that horror that you've been, been kind of resisting. Um, but then again, things get normal. But um, I, so thinking of scale, I basically think like it's adaptive at the individual level. The problem is it's maladaptive at the level of society and culture and the world, because if everybody is acting like everything is normal, then nobody's doing anything. Like nobody's solving the issue. Like it's, it's, it's adaptive for me to be able to do my job. If somebody else, like the pandemic team is taking care of what needs to be done to manage the pandemic. But if there's no pandemic team and um, all the epidemiologists are getting fired and there's no resources for the people who know what to do and have been planning for this for years and know how to solve the problem, then like that's when our kind of ground level normalization feels maladaptive because like nothing's happening a level or two up. So unfortunately, I think there's all kinds of stuff like that going on, not just around like the level of normalization, but just where things that would work fine on the local level don't work on the national and global scale. And we have not figured out solutions to those like national and global problems. Well, not only have we not figured out solutions, there are people who are intentionally exploiting the way we respond. Like, what you oh, yeah. you talk about a, a leaked memo from Lawrence Summers, who more recently was the president of Harvard, but back in the day was head of the World Bank, where he said he thought that Africa was, between you and me, he said, underpolluted, uh, and that we should move more dirty industries there. I mean, he surely knew the effects of a dirty industry or dirty industries being moved to Africa are going to happen over decades slowly and that the cause isn't an immediate cause. Um, and it's a far away one. You know, one of the ways you're talking about the, how the global South is suffering long dyings sort of by design, but also to point out that this is easy to design and for us to ignore where we are mm-hmm. because of the slow violence phenomenon. But I, I have to admit that I, I, I buy that this is a real phenomenon, the human problem of confronting hyper objects, invisible threats, and slow violence. But at the same time, if we're talking about doubling, I also feel skeptical that climate change is that hard to grasp. Or more, more I, I wonder if it is just particularly convenient for us to not to try to try that hard 
particularly in a capitalist framework, to grasp it. Because there have been societies like the Iroquois Confederacy, which measured its actions forward to the seventh generation, that have, have built in an ethos that considers the future, um, which capitalism, I think by definition, as an extractive system is not. But mm-hmm. because when I look at the... I, this is my little pontification that I want you to, I want to hear what you think of. Cause when I look at the pandemic, another invisible phenomenon, most countries around the world have done things that would have seemed unthinkable in January. We've shut down the airline industry. Almost all art and culture and sporting events have stopped. We've closed restaurants. There have been an organization of unheard of massive scientific and public health efforts to develop treatments and vaccines. I don't remember how many thousands of vaccine trials. We've restricted people in their homes, and in some countries, quite restricted. But the impulse behind these things that seemed unimaginable happening now, this sort of coordinated global effort, to me seems like there it's a regressive impulse rather than a progressive impulse in the sense that we're motivated to do this, this thing that seemed impossible to change because we want to return to life exactly the way it was before. And we think if we do all of these things now, we're going to be able to get back to normal quicker. Um, But we've also demonstrated that we can do this, that we have the, that the ability to do this in, for any, in any context means we could, in theory, do this for climate change. We could stop things and start things differently and even agree that when we reopen, I mean, talk about a golden opportunity when all these things are stopped to start to reconsider reopening differently. But, but the reason why I think we don't do that is because not because we can't grasp climate change. Cause I don't think, I mean, some people can't grasp COVID. Um, but because if we were to close down for climate change, we would have to reopen in a way that's unrecognizable to us now. Like we would have to reconsider and reimagine our lives, but we don't, I mean, I don't know that we're really doing that with the pandemic. I mean, we're doing it in a way to preserve what's recognizable about our lives. Weirdly. Yeah. I got, I don't, I don't feel like we're disagreeing with each other. Oh, I didn't think Um, so either. Yeah. I just was curious. I I, I mean, I absolutely agree that it's like, it's being trapped within this kind of capitalist superstructure that, that makes, that makes like enough action possible. So yeah, it's not that, um, it's not that some people don't absolutely grasp climate change, but that, like the people who have, you know, the time and the energy and the ability to take action either can't or won't. Yeah. And everybody else who is, you know, kind of giving them power is too distracted by other shit, like the urgent problems um, or having to do their 50 hour a week jobs 
to to change anything. And so it just feels like we're trapped in this system that's just like slowly grinding towards disaster. You know what I mean? No, I agree Uh, with you. I mean, what's terrifying to me about the pandemic, since we're here in this moment, I apologize for speaking so much, but what terrifies me (laughs) about the pandemic is less the pandemic, but how, how little, if at all, we're talking about causes. Like, when was the last time, if ever, you encountered a discussion about why, I mean, you have, I'm sure because of your writing, about why the pandemic happened versus how to get it to go away? And I'm thinking of David Quammen, who's in your book. And he's in your book mainly around Ebola. But he's predicted this pandemic, not specific to COVID necessarily, but a pandemic of this gravity for decades, for several decades. And he argues now that one of the main reasons or the main risks is coming from ecological disturbance when we search for these precious metals that go into our cell phones and into our laptops. But no one's talking about that. And no one's talking about how that would be different. And what's the, the disturbing part about it is if we switch to renewable energy, if we switch to wind turbines and electric cars and solar panels, the increase for demand of these metals is going to go up exponentially. And you can read scientific papers where they're like, there's a finite resource of these metals. We need to start figuring out how to recycle them. But in the meantime, the pandemic risk is going to go up like this, that we're living now, the risk of it's going to be so much higher in the future. If we transition to renewable energy sources And I'm just wondering about this notion in our brains. I guess this is a long way to ask around our brains because I wonder, we're not talking causes about the pandemic. There doesn't seem to be a country, even one country in the world, that's reimagining itself around climate change in this golden opportunity. And I don't know if it's Rebecca Solnit who who said this, but she embodies it. But someone said, hope is a discipline. And I feel like that's true, but I also feel entirely undisciplined. And I didn't know <laughs> if you um, if you had any thoughts about this. I have two, uh, two, my mind's going to areas. So one of them is just this feeling that I've had for a long time, which we're, we've reached this kind of like zero sum place when it comes to the idea of progress. Um, you know, just, we're all... I mean, this is another thing that I think makes like real climate action impossible is that there's this just very lulling belief in a progress narrative that like we'll figure it out somehow, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like we'll we'll figure it out in the way that we figured things out in the past, like through like military research <laughs> or just like investing in tech companies or whatever. Um, but I mean, something that I think about, you mentioned phones, metals, like sometimes when I try to think of like, well, what's like a true pure good, like an example of real progress in the past, say, 20 years, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like in the 20th century, there were these clear examples where like hygiene got better, you know, like less people died in hospitals and stuff like that. That's clear. But like, what's a really clear good that didn't just make something else bad? And sometimes I think, well, you know, I guess iPhones kind of like made like, a computer and internet access really accessible to people who don't have a lot of money because you know maybe they couldn't buy a computer um 
couldn't hook up broadband, but if they have an iPhone, they can do a lot of stuff they couldn't do before. But that only makes life better, like in the US for people who are able to go buy an iPhone or, you know, whatever, Android or something for 200 bucks. That the demand for those, of course, is making life worse for people elsewhere. And it's just, again, it's that thing where it's like out of sight. And it's really easy to kind of just focus on the good part, like how that's making quality of life better in the US. Um, and not think about what it means for sort of like total quality of life everywhere yeah. on the globe. Like we just we just don't have that kind of um, just stalled thinking about like people in general and certainly not about people in the future who don't exist yet, who like we obviously have some responsibility towards. We just ignore them because they don't exist yet. But the other place that makes my mind go is um, I was recently listening to this philosopher on a podcast, um, Kate Soper. She wrote a book called, I think it's called Alternative Hedonism. Um, and she's thinking through like, you know, how do we make like post-capitalist society like sound appealing? <laughs> like, like not just frame it as sort of like, what do we have to get up? But like, what do we get? Like, what would we, what would we gain by, by moving past capitalism? And she said she, she was very kind of inspired in a weird, weird way by what happened in England after the pandemic or during the pandemic, which is that like a lot of people were like, I don't want to go back to the way things were before. I don't want to go into an office every day, eight hours a day. I like, am enjoying my time with my kids more. I get outside more, like this is better. <laughs> um, and that was really kind of helping her think through like, how, how could we just like, could we just decide as a society? Like, okay, nobody wants to go back to the office all the time. Um, we don't want to work as much. We want to see our kids more. And I don't know, I found that, like, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to think of, like, these are the plus sides of the pandemic. Like, <laughs> well, there could you know be, though. I mean? like, That's what's scaring me about the pandemic, is I actually think it's a golden opportunity for yeah. our species to... Well, you should, you should look into Kate Soper. Okay. I think you would, this would really resonate with you. Yeah. But um, yeah, she, she's looking at the opportunistic side too, of like, how could this help us break out of these capitalist patterns that we've been so locked into for so long and just like this forced us to break them? Yeah. Well, longtime listeners of the show know that I go on these sort of periodic jags of engaging with writers one after the other about storytelling and climate change with this sort of open question about whether if we were to change our stories, we could change our behavior or our consciousness, if not to avert climate apocalypse any longer, since I think we've crossed a line there, but to learn to live within it and potentially over a longer period of time repair. But, um, but that if we if we could decenter the human point of view, bring in other non-human creatures into the story, play with non-human time frames or story shapes that perhaps this is the beginning of of recreating a culture or an ethos that could change behavior. Um, I don't think that was necessarily your attention in this book, but there were things in the book that made me relate them to deep ecology and some of the philosophies that orbit around it. When you say in the book, what we experience as direct access to the actual physical world 
through our actual physical body is really just an extremely immersive user interface. I, I immediately was thinking, well, yeah, but squirrels have their their user interface and fungi and plants have their own user interface and then discovered that you actually engage that with which we've already talked about the umwelt. Um, but if I were to get geeky about philosophy around it for a moment, if everything experiences life through the unreality of their own constructed user interface, if everything experiences life as an unreality, wouldn't that perhaps be the same as for practical purposes as experiencing it as it is? In other words, could as it is be the constructed world? Like instead of the world behind it? I mean, I'd, if everybody's doing it, and I don't know. I don't know if you studied. I mean, it kind of gets back to I don't know if you know the philosopher Berkeley, where he he believed that um, he questioned whether reality existed beyond perception. And the way he cheated at the end, which wasn't that uncommon in the history of philosophy, is he just said, "Okay, the the way things still exist when we're not looking at them, or something's not looking at them, is God's God is looking at them." Um, <laughs> but but it does beg this question of like this notion of this as it is. But I feel like this impulse to look beyond our own user interface as a writer feels like a gesture that is meaningful to me around ways we could um, enact and evoke new types of stories. Um because when you talk about how we're going to fix it in progress, that we're always centering ourselves as this. We love movies like that Matt Damon movie on Mars where everything goes wrong and we can just watch him MacGyver everything. But so many of the solutions, we wouldn't be very involved in them. We would, they would be involving other creatures being able to live more on their own terms, which is something so unglamorous to us to like push ourselves out of the frame. <laughs> But but do you feel like yeah. do you do you feel like um, there's anything deep ecology like in in what you're exploring? I mean, thinking through like centering ourselves, I I do think that even you know the most like the most activist people I know, there's things they're sort of not willing to give up, um, and. Yeah, and maybe it's a question of like, why should I give it up instead of Donald Trump? But like, I, I think scale is a real problem. And I think um, it's it's not obvious to me that we shouldn't be speaking very seriously about things like <laughs> limiting how many children we have. You know what I mean? Um, but I, that we still think of that as just a matter of pure personal choice, um, which I wonder if, you know, we think we like we on the left tend to say, like, well, obviously, vaccines are not a matter of personal choice. You know what I mean? Like, that's a clear social good. You should just have to do it. I don't know. I think you should. I think you should have to get a flu shot. I don't think that should be um, up to the individual. But like. I think there's a lot of other things that we seem to just sort of accept. It's fine if they're personal choice that probably shouldn't be like 
we should be making group level decisions and like, I don't care what you want. You just have to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we're talking about scale, say like we're talking about population and really the, the people we, we want to have less children should be the, the Europe and the, and the United States, the ones that are doing the most uh, resource extraction as people, as adults, um, those societies on that scale are mostly are often pro births uh, have pro birth policies. So you get incentives to have children, whether it's a tax break. We're not even neutral on that level. So when you say it's a personal choice, it's a personal choice where the society's nudging you that way. But if we were talking about group level thinking, and these countries are worried about the demographic shift around around um, aging, having more open border policies where the global South could move to inhabitable countries from countries that have become uninhabitable because of our own extractive policies. Um, I mean, I know this is utopian, but, but, (laughs) but there are, I mean, there, and there are solutions that um, at least conceptual solutions that we're not, we don't seem to on that scale be willing to, to think. Yeah. If we were, if we were really trying to, optimize for everything like and that that is this kind of utopian sci-fi vision of like if there was some kind of you know board that made decisions for the whole planet like it seems like there are things we would clearly be doing differently um but we don't operate that way and you know even the u.s feels like too big to to govern as one country because you know there's so much sort of like disagreement among regions about how things should be operated and allocated and um like I basically, I just, I think scale is a really big problem, but, um, well, I was, <laughs> I wanted to get back to something you said about, you know, kind of like the reality of like, is there any there or there? I think to some extent, that's a question of like, what level of resolution you're looking at the world at. And like, depending on what kind of thinking or decision-making you're doing, you're, you don't necessarily need to look at all of them. Um, but I guess I would say like, in this book, I think the relevance is mostly that everybody's constructed reality is a little bit different. And um, it's very hard to reach agreement on, like not even like putting aside what the real real is, <laughs> like just finding agreement on what we think is happening. You know what I mean? That becomes impossible because people are using their own little curated sources and bringing their own bias to the sources and looking for information that reinforces their priors. And so we just like, can't seem to agree on the reality of what's happening even right now, much less last week or in 2016 um, or in 1900. And I, I find that troubling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Well, I'm going to make a really weird, pivot of scale and also of content. So if we're going to pivot from these, the way we're unable to grapple with, with the scale of the problem on a global or even national level down back to uh, each creature having its own umwelt and then Uh pivot from there to your husband, John, um, who is a character across your books and, and one we encounter who's, Umwelt is changing due to the changing in his hearing. 
And that changing raises some really interesting questions about self and identity for both of you um, as it affects perception. Could, could you talk a little bit about your husband as a character um, and then how it's in, influenced your own writing around perception and then um, and also serves as an example of some of the things that you're looking at around mm-hmm. the con- around constructed not just constructed present moment, but a constructed self ultimately. My husband has a rare ear condition, um, which started showing symptoms maybe 10 or so years ago, but they were kind of mild at first and just got steadily um, and then rapidly worse. And so um, the really, for a while, it was disruptive in a lot of ways, but some of the symptoms have sort of calmed down. Like he doesn't have very frequent dizziness or vertigo anymore unless, you know, you kind of, sometimes he has like a bad reaction to a medication or something like that. Um, but he's kind of, it, that part of it is stabilized to some extent, but basically like his hearing just became very unstable. <laughs> um, and it was, it's in both his ears. A lot of people only have Meniere's disease in one ear. And so even if that ear goes completely dead, it's kind of not really devastating, um, but he has them both his ears and they're kind of like constantly fluctuating in terms of how much he can hear and the quality of his hearing. Um, so yeah, it, it just, it completely changed our lives. And for a little while we were kind of like all of our energy was dedicated to trying to figure out, you know, what it is and if there was something we could do to stop it or cure it. And, you know, we eventually kind of figured out, no, there's, there isn't like the ear just isn't very well understood. Um, and we, we pretty much went through all the, all the potential diseases that have like clear treatments or cures that, you know, would have, um, that would have like solved the problem as it were. And so like some people just have this thing and there's, it just is what it is. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we've learned to live with it, but. Um, what was interesting to me about it in your writings about it and talking about it is like, for instance, the way he might perceive your voice differently. And so mm-hmm. he'll interpret a tone now that presumably was possibly a, t- a tone he would have perceived as neutral in the past as having uh-huh. some sort of emotional valence to it that he didn't before, which then calls into question. And then the way his voice has changed through mm-hmm. his change in hearing to you, which then yeah. makes both of your selves unstable essentially. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's all these kinds of little like follow on effects from it where, you know, it's, it changed certain things about his, just his identity because um, he was, he was an actor and a lecturer and um, he, you know, he, he's known for having like this, this beautiful deep voice um, and he loved talking on the phone. <laughs> it's harder for him to talk on the phone now. It's harder for him to like teach in a big lecture hall, for example, um, because, like people can still hear him, but if they ask a question and they're really far away, he can't necessarily hear them. Um, so he hasn't lost all his hearing. It's just like, you know, he's compromised and he has to wear hearing aids and they do weird things to sound. So depending on how bad his hearing is on any given day, it could be very affected or not very affected at all. And um, I, sh- I just want to say like my version of this is, you know, 
highly impoverished compared to his own version of all these events. Sure. And like, he, he writes really beautifully about all this stuff. And um, I, I try not to like appropriate his story too much because it is, you know, I think it's something that he, like it's better coming from him. <laughs> um, does he, and he, does ha- he, he publish has, some he has of a this? memoir coming out. Oh, he does. Actually. Okay, great. Um, yeah, you, you'll love it. It's beautiful. Um, but yeah, but it was impossible for me not to write about it at all just because it was such a big part of my life. Um, and it did kind of serve as this useful, very close reminder, a very concrete reminder of these things that I was thinking about in terms of like the instability of self and identity, um, you know, how quickly a change like that can change everything. Um, and just, just very fundamentally like really interesting things in terms of say how he listens to music. So, cause he can't always hear what a song is unless you tell him what song it is and then suddenly he can hear it. So mm-hmm. it's like his mind is able to then fill in the missing parts and he can like quote unquote hear the whole song. Whereas that's before so cool. he, he didn't recognize it at all. Mm-hmm. So that's really, that's an interesting thing. He much prefers to listen to music that he knew well before he started losing his hearing. Um, it's much harder for him to listen to new, new music because it's like there's there's too much de- detail that he's that he's missing. Um, well, an- another way that you foreground the way information is shaped and mediated is not only what's going on in 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 the brain, but mm-hmm. the way you source your essays and then foreground your sources. So, for instance, the book opens with you discovering on Twitter a link to a YouTube video of a computer animation of the sinking of the Titanic. So we get these three levels of mediation past the actual event of the Titanic. And you do this often. You have an early poem called blog poem after Walter Benjamin that opens every time you reproduce a piece of art, you remove some of its aura. And that's why your mixtape didn't impress me much. It was so fucking auraless. (laughs) <laughs> but but you have your work has a mixtape quality to it in this sense. In 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 that spirit, one person tweeted about it. One of the many things I love about Elisa Gabbard's new book is how transgressive it feels every time she introduces an idea by mentioning a link she clicked on Twitter or Google image searching. It feels like she has successfully moved internet verbs into the lexicon of the timeless. So I was hoping <laughs> that's great, right? Um, like yeah. Talk to us more about, about this move. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I'm glad you used the word move because it does feel like one of those things that I'm so conscious of now that I worry about it being a little too like codified and systematized in my process and just becoming too much of an obvious move. So I have to watch out for it. Um, it's, it started just as this completely intuitive, natural thing. Like part of my writing process is like research and like immersion in material. I think I always think like, I like calling it, you know, research, even when it's just like, the most indulgent, lazy <laughs> internet rabbit holing, you know, like just like getting lost on Wikipedia um, or watching sort of amateur YouTube 
quote unquote documentaries. Um, but like, I, st I still feel like that's research. So. Um, I just, it's, it's just very, it's just a very natural way for me to get into an essay to kind of invite the reader in by saying, oh, this is how I got interested in this. Um, and like, here's where I went from there. But um, yeah, and maybe that's partly just feeling like it's sort of revealing, like I'm not an expert um, because I don't know, maybe there's, I hate the phrase imposter syndrome, but maybe there's some kind of shade of feeling like someone's going to accuse me of like being in over my head um, because you know, I don't know how you would characterize this book exactly. It's, you know, it's not personal essays. They're sort of like historical, philosophical, whatever, um, but I'm in them. And I feel like if I just keep reminding people, like this is just kind of my, my subjectivity, um, I'm not the authority on anything. I'm just telling you how I processed and organized and thought through this material. Um, like then I'm not going to get accused of being like a charlatan. <laughs> I, I, I guess that's that's just sort of my way of like telling people I'm not an expert first before they can accuse me of not being an expert. Yeah, no, I love that. I want to I want to make sure we take some of these concepts and bring them into your um, choices around writing, like this choice, which even though that does it doesn't sound like you made this choice around foregrounding. YouTube from Twitter to commu computer animation to Titanic uh, disaster, even though the choice wasn't necessarily to echo the way a lot of our self is mediated and constructed, it does echo that. And then I, I was also thinking about, you know, the notion of the Umwelt and the immersive user interface and the way our brain is making things. And you also bring up I don't know if I'm saying it right, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis about how the structures of language actually change the way we are, are capable of perceiving based on whatever language we're, we're speaking through. But all of this mm -hmm. makes me think of something else you, you talk about in a variety of unrelated contexts, and that's the benefits of limiting your choices as a writing strategy. Um, so when people ask how you ordered the essays in the book, you said by having three sections, it limited your options in each section so that the ordering was rather easy and obvious with pro poetry. You've said you sometimes choose the form and the style prior to starting the writing of the poem at all, just so you have less to consider before you begin. And in your, your New York times magazine article about the Denver public library, you say your favorite section of the library is a section called recently, recently returned, which is just 40 or 50 books with nothing that unites them other than that they were recently returned. And one of the reasons why you find this attractive is the limitation of choice. I mean, the other appeal was it's randomness and it's wide cross section of the library, but talk to us about creating through constraint because mm -hmm. as much as that's not what you're writing about, you are writing about us, the self and the way we create a self and the way we construct to create a sense of seamlessness. And when you're making this book, 
which um, might seem, I don't know if seamless is the right word, but it seems like a cohesive whole. You're making choices behind the scene involving constraint to make that possible. Yeah, I think of that, uh, like that library shelf, um, which I miss because I haven't gone to the library in so long. I think of that as anti-curation. Like it's sort of serving the function of curation and that it's limiting your options, but um, but it's not subject to one person's like oppressive opinions or taste about what is like the best. Um, yeah, and I, similarly, like I really like like browsing like the sale section of anything because it's like such a small subset of the store's whole merchandise, but it's random. Like it's just like random things they're trying to get rid of from every category. <laughs> I like that's that's always really pleasurable to me. Uh, it reminds me of like when you're when you're a kid and you would like look through a catalog and be like, oh if I could have one thing on this whole page, what would it be? Um but yeah, so limiting, limiting options, limiting choice, I think it's like, it just helps me focus in terms of, you know, knowing I have like less energy and time for writing. Um, I, I think I was less, I, I, just, I don't feel like I needed constraints when I was like 20 and had all the time in the world. Um, but like the older I get and like sort of more difficult my life gets, the more I feel like I need those constraints to like, simplify things and make decisions easier and with a poem like just I actually I'm actually going to read some for the audio archive later but I've been writing these poems starting this summer and to this fall that are all like 15 lines um in five three line stanzas um and like each stanza is completely contained within itself and the lines are like all kind of about the same length and I just like stumbled into it one day, but I was just like, Oh my God, now that I have this form, like I know that I could write one of these like once a week or once every two weeks. It's like, if I just sit down and I have like one line to start with or one image to start with, I know I can fill out the rest of the poem because it's like, does each poem have 40 M dashes too? <laughs> no, <laughs> one or two tops. Um, I try, I try not to use too many M dashes in poems. I think I'm not, I'm not Emily Dickinson. Um, but yeah, like there's something about having this very clear path slash process laid out in front of me. So I can like, all I, I know that all I really have to do is get to the next line and like the end of the poem is in sight. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just like a little, you know, mind hack for me. Um, I don't know that that would help everybody. Um, but it helps me a lot to kind of have the sense of like, oh, well, I've, I've written these, I've written a poem exactly like this 10 times before. I know I can do another one and I know it's going to have a really similar feel, but the goal is to make it like completely different, but just as good. I wonder if it might have a role in when you have an infinite amount of research too, say for the unreality of memory, mm -hmm. you must have to go through the quandary of how to, um, how to call research uh -huh. that's super fascinating, but just, it's just too much. I mean, cause you could go yeah. endlessly in any of these, you could have made the disaster section, obviously an infinitely long section if you'd wanted to. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. There, there are, you know, thinking back again to just all the many decisions that go into making a book, I feel like so many of them are arbitrary. And for me, it's just a question of like, well, I'd like, I either ran out of time or, or I ran out of interest in that topic. Um, or you just make a cutoff, like in the bibliography, I decided not to include like every, you know, movie or, and magazine article and et cetera, because that could have been as long as the book. So I only included like book books. But um, it, like the, the essay that was the most overwhelming in terms of the research, and I think it was because I kind of mashed up a couple of different essay ideas and decided to make it one long essay, was the one about witches and, um, and hysteria. And um, I, I couldn't approach it the way that I approached the other essays in the book because I had at least twice as much material. And I just felt like this doesn't fit into the container. Like I, I, I'd gotten to this kind of um, systematized way of approaching an essay where I kind of felt like, okay, I know that if I do research for X amount of time and then I just sit down, I can, I can write it in like three or four kind of movements or long sections and do what I want to do. But for this essay, I was like, I can't do that. I have to come up with something totally new. And I ended up um, just stealing uh, the structure of crowds and power, because that's one of the, the books that I was reading when I was researching that essay. And it's in all these like kind of short, almost mini essay or, or chapter um, sections that each have their own little titles and the little titles are all really great. And so I decided like, oh, I'm gonna try to, at least like as a first step, just organize this material into thematic sections with titles just to help me. And I wasn't sure if I was gonna leave it that way in the end, um, or, or kind of like, you know, pull that scaffolding away. But I ended up leaving it because I liked it and um, I wanted to be able to talk about crowds and power. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I wanna make sure we, we touch on the last section, which raises large ethical and moral questions. And I think touch very much more deeply on this question of scale, particularly uh, around morality and us being exposed to infinite information. If we go back to your question of whether, you know, obviously sanitation and figuring out how to lower the infant mortality rate are good, are goods, are true medical advances that happened in the 20th century is the cell phone in advance. And is all of this extra infinite exposure to information in advance. Cause if we take this notion of limiting information, not as a writing technique and not as a aspect of our brain and perception, but as a moral quandary, you bring us to a really intriguing, but very uncomfortable place because obviously willful ignorance the willful avoidance of information has moral implications. But you also engage with some thinking about how, how possible or impossible it is to be moral or happy when we are confronted with a bottomless amount of information all the time. Information about people suffering everywhere at every moment. Information about the damaging effects of every single aspect of our lives or every possible choice that we might make. And you engage with uh, the thinking of Daniel Dennett, who wonders whether it was easier to live a more virtuous life, living in a slower and more closed system in the past than we had now. And at one point in that section, you, you bring up the first American newspaper that strived to produce regular news items on a regular basis. And that meant once a month. 
which is just mind blowing now. <laughs> but what's interesting about that notion, if we imagine like the the really instant news of the time was once a month, um, instead of what you say now, where you say the media once needed news, but now manufactures news, this leads to all sorts of interesting things because back then, at least in Daniel Dennett's view, we wouldn't have to be willfully ignorant. Some of that, I don't think ignorance is the right word, but some of that ignorance would be built into just us living our lives. So the choices, uh, the scale of what we would know of what was going on would be so much more of a, of a bioregional scale and that we would be able to be both, we'd be able to pursue a life of not being miserable and also one of, of striving towards an ethos at that scale, but that there's some sort of quandary now around this choice around willful ignorance versus um, endless anxiety and misery. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that's even the right way to say it. That's not how you say it, but I guess I want you, I guess I want you to bring us home with these thorny issues a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I do think it was possible, you know, sort of in like pre-industrial eras to, um, to live a happy life and an ethical life. Because as you say, like the sort of impact of your decisions was more local, both geographically and in terms of time, like it was less likely that, you know, really anything you could do was going to have this um, long, like future extending impact on future generations. Um, And so not only were they kind of necessarily ignorant of what was happening elsewhere in the world, because they just didn't have access to that information. Like, um, yeah, it was just that it, it made their lives happier and better, <laughs> you know, like all they really had to worry about was their own problems. They didn't have to worry about like, well, should we be solving problems that are happening, um, you know, around the globe, you know, depending on how far back we go, maybe they didn't even know that the world is a globe or that there's other people on the other side of it. Right. Um, God, what, what peace? I mean, of course they were, I don't know that they were happy because, you know, maybe they were just so, afraid of being eaten by a bear. <laughs> like they never had a moment's peace. I don't know. I don't know. But um but certainly um they didn't have the kind of um like competition between just just even the question of like do we deserve to be happy? Like I I I can't imagine um just, you know, like a peasant <laughs> farming potatoes, questioning whether they deserve to be happy. Maybe they did, though. Maybe they did. I don't know. You know, whenever I say like, oh, I can't imagine X happening, then I immediately double back on it and think, um, whatever, all humans are the same. But I do think that that has become something that we literally think about daily that feels like an absolutely unnatural question, um, not just like can we be happy? Can we achieve happiness? But like, if, if we are happy, do we deserve it? Um, because of everything else we know that's going on while we're happy. Right. Yeah. We, we, we know that 
other people aren't happy <laughs> or even if they are happy, like their material circumstances are like way shittier than ours. And that's crippling and paralyzing. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a moral person, I know there are people who, who know this and don't care. Could you read the first full paragraph on page 234 for us as sort of a, a setup to a final question? As the injustices pile up and reserves run low, the question of where we should focus our moral attention becomes critical. When exposed to more evils than we can possibly attend to, most of us feel helpless. And what more than helplessness excuses apathy and inaction? Rather than confront global suffering, we may cull our feeds or stop watching the news. Or worse, we may make of the suffering other an enemy, turning apathy to antipathy. These unspoken algorithms by which we manage our empathy, they are almost innocent, almost self-care. We're not committing atrocities, just refusing to witness them. But layered together, they have the shade of evil. In your writing on, on Timothy Morton, who coined the term hyperobject, mm -hmm. you talk about how he says the end of the world has already happened and often needs to happen twice to happen. That it ended with the invention of the steam engine and then with the invention of the atomic bomb. Two moments that are pointed to as possible beginnings of the Anthropocene. And then you bring up the Buddhist broken glass practice, basically that we should not be upset if we break a teacup because it was always eventually going to break. Therefore, it was already broken. And then you wonder if the world is already broken. So given that you've taken us down into the dark hole of the future, that is also our lived present moment, um, and somehow unwittingly comforted us and calmed us there. I'm curious what artistic desire or need finishing this book produced in you, what your next book length project is like as mm -hmm. sort of a, 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 whether it's a counter or an extension or what can you tell us a little bit about what, what, you've decided to do having finished yeah. it, finished the unreality of memory? Yeah. So I have been writing a book of poetry. Um, it's, it's funny. It actually, I mean, because my, my interests tend to extend, <laughs> like there are through lines in my work. Like I think it's dealing with sort of a lot of the same material or processing the same reality I was processing while I was writing this. Um, so there's, you know, stuff about what it feels like to be a self in this world right now and um, thinking through ideas of happiness and morality. But in poetry, you know, like the expectations are entirely different. So, you know, I, there was all this responsibility I felt um, to, you know, to achieve accuracy and not to be manipulative um, in the in the service of an argument, um, had to be fact checks. 
And uh, I, I mean, I think I didn't make too many kind of directive arguments um, or come down too hard on like, here's what I think people should do. Um, it's not that kind of book, but I do think people come to it potentially with that kind of expectation of like, I'm going to present solutions to these problems where it's more like I introduce a problem and then make it even more of a problem. Um, but like, yeah, writing poetry is like a different way for me to think through the same stuff and not have those obligations of, <laughs> um, like somebody expects me to solve a problem <laughs> or that I have to be, you know, beholden to any version of reality. Um, like I can just be completely free and I can change my mind as often as I want and contradict myself. And I just, you know, I don't, you know, fewer people read poetry, <laughs> fewer people feel qualified to sort of like analyze it or say what it means. And that is, um, that is very freeing. So it's sort of just like a break for myself. And then, um, yeah, I guess I'm also kind of slowly working on another book of essays, but they're much more along the kind of personal critical line than this. Well, when you talk about people reading or not reading poetry, it reminded me that you have this ritual where you catalog and publish a list of the books that you read in a given year and, and your sort of like mini essay about each book. And I know that around the 2016 election, you were reading a Holocaust memoir, I think. Um, what are you reading in this analogous time four years, four years later? Um, what, um, or what would you give us, give us either, a, uh, give us an insight to some of the books you've been reading or yeah. a shout out for books that you've read recently that you're just, you just would like people to read. Yeah. Um, I do think that this year in particular, I've been um, a little bit more like selective about the books I'm reading and it, it has nothing to do with Trump so much as the pandemic. And like, I just, maybe this feeling like my life is shorter, <laughs> but I've just been very much like, I want to, I want to be loving the books I'm reading. I want them to bring me joy on some level but usually that joy is because I just think that the writing is so interesting and wonderful versus um it's it's not escapist exactly you know I just like I don't want to read a book just like a mediocre book because other people I know are reading it or um just yeah for the wrong reasons like I want to finish books that I love and like have something to say about um, I don't know that I've 100% succeeded in that, but I, I am still keeping track of all the books that I read. The most memorable reading experiences I've had this year were reading a lot of Rilke. Um, I was especially doing that when I like couldn't sleep. Like if I would wake up really early, I would get up and read Rilke in the dark. Um, and let's see, I I read Matthew Salis's novel a few months ago and I really like that. That's new and um, yeah, I feel bad for books that have come out this year. Me too. So yeah, um, I don't know that that got as much attention as it could have. It's called Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear. It's really, really interesting. It pairs really well with my book, I think. And <laughs> um, the way that it sort of engages with like different levels of reality and what is real. Um, and doubling. 
it's it's definitely like I, I love books that are sort of they feel like they could be like psychological philosophical horror like about somebody going through some kind of mental breakdown or they could be about like an alternative reality where life is really like this where they just kind of like are right on that line um so that was a really good one right now i'm reading the voyage out by virginia wolf which uh her first novel i had never read it before i'm planning to write about that um oh i just read darkness visible for the first time i've been i've been trying to read a lot of books about despair because uh i'm just interested in despair right now (laughs) (laughs) well it was a joy having you on the show today elisa it was a joy for me thank you so much we were talking today to elisa gabbert about a book called The Unreliability of Memory, if I'm remembering it correctly. Or is it The Unreality of Memory? <laughs> the author of The Unreality of Memory. We should have done memory. two covers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, was, yes. it per- was it Percival Everett who had a book come out with like three different endings recently? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was actually. Um, we've been listening to uh, Elisa Gabbert, the author of The Unreality of Memory been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Elisa Gabbard's work at elisagabbert.com. Elisa has also added a reading of new poetry to the bonus audio archive, joining readings by writers Jenny Ofel, Lydia Yuknovich, N.K. Jemison, Nikki Finney, Natalie Diaz, and many others. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the fall fundraising campaign to get between the covers on solid footing going into 2021. You can do so and find out all the benefits of becoming a listener supporter at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who keep the ship afloat. Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogie, Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Ishwena Cantor in Publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning. <laughs>